This morning we'll be reading from 2 Kings chapter 8. We'll start in verse 7 and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. And today we actually get back in with the kings. It's not that we haven't dealt with any kings here recently, but we haven't dealt with any named kings for quite some time. It's been a little bit of a mystery as to who was the king. And now today, this morning, we get back into a passage that includes some kings with their names. And we're reading verses 7 to 29. That's uh, the balance of chapter 8. Before we read that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, give clarity to our minds and open our minds and our hearts to receive what your Spirit would speak to us through your inspired word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in the seventh verse, Elisha went to Damascus, and Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was ill. When the king was told the man of God has come all the way up here, he said to Haziel, take a gift with you and go to meet the man of God. Consult the Lord through him. Ask him, will I recover from this illness? Haziel went to meet Elisha, taking with him as a gift 40 camel loads of all the finest wares of Damascus. He went in and stood before him and said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to ask, Will I recover from this illness? Elisha answered, Go and say to him, You will certainly recover. But the Lord has revealed to me that he will in fact die. He stared at him with a fixed gaze until Haziel felt ashamed. Then the man of God began to weep. Why is my Lord weeping? asked Haziel. Because I know the harm you will do to the Israelites, he answered. You will set fire to their fortified places, kill their young men with the sword, dash their little children to the ground, and rip open their pregnant women. Hazel said, How could your servant, a mere dog, accomplish such a feat? The Lord has shown me that you will become king of Aram, answered Elisha. Then Hazel left Elisha and returned to his master. When Ben-Hadad asked, What did Elisha say to you? Hazael replied, He told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took a thick cloth, soaked it in water, and spread it over the king's face, so that he died. Then Hazael succeeded him as king. In the fifth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, son of Jehoshaphat, began his reign as king of Judah. He was 32 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. He walked in the ways of the king of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. In the time of Jehoram, Edom rebelled against Judah and set up its own king. So Jehoram went to Zer with all his chariots. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariot commanders, but he rose up and broke through by night. His army, however, fled back home. To this day, Edom has been in revolt against Judah. Libna revolted at the same time. As for the other events of Jehoram's reign and all he did, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Judah? Jehoram rested with his fathers and was buried with them in the city of David. And Ahaziah, his son, succeeded him as king. In the twelfth year of Joram, son of Ahab, king of Israel, Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaziah was twenty-two years old, and he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem one year. His mother's name was Athaliah, 
granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. He walked in the ways of the house of Ahab and did evil in the eyes of the Lord as the house of Ahab had done, for he was related by marriage to Ahab's family. Ahaziah went with Joram, son of Ahab, to war against Haziel, king of Aram, at Ramoth-Gilead. The Arameans wounded Joram, so King Joram returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds the Arameans had inflicted on him at Ramoth in his battle with Haziel, king of Aram. Then Ahaziah, son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to Jezreel to see Joram, son of Ahab, because he had been wounded. It's another one of those passages that seems strange, seems a little, seems a little foreign to us, and we have a number of questions off the bat, and the first one that might come to mind is, is why would, why would Ben-Hadad send another lavish gift to Elisha the prophet when the previous lavish gift that he had sent had been rejected? Is he trying to bribe the prophet again? Well, it didn't work the first time. Why would he think it's going to work the second time? But then the second question we have an answer, or we have a question, is, and then we have an answer, is that why is it that Elisha finds himself, why do we find Elisha going all the way into the heart of enemy territory, all the way to Damascus, the capital city of Syria, Syria being the enemy of Israel? Well, why is he there? We need to, to understand that we need to go back to 1 Kings 19. And in 1 Kings 19, the Lord instructs Elijah that Elijah is to do a number of things. One is to anoint Elisha to be his successor. Another of the things that he needs to do is that he needs to go and anoint Hazael to be king of Syria. But before Elijah is able to go and finish those things, before he's able to go and anoint Hazael, the Lord takes him into heaven by the whirlwind with the chariots. And so the, the mantle falls to Elisha, and Elisha picks up the ministry of Elijah where Elijah had left off, and so he goes off to meet with Hazael up in Damascus. And there are a couple of important things for us to note here in this first section, and the first of which is to compare and contrast, compare and contrast Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, with one of the kings of Israel. Back in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2, we read of, of Ahaziah, a different Ahaziah than the one we read of here in chapter 8, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2, of the king of Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. Now when, now when Ahaziah falls and is injured and wonders if he's going to die, where does he turn? Well, he sends his messengers off to go consult with Baal-zebub, the foreign god. He, he sends his messengers to go ask the, the pagan god whether he's going to get better. But when the pagan king, when the foreign king becomes ill and wants to know if he's going to survive, where does he send his messengers? He sends his messengers to Israel's God. When the chips are down, Israel's God has no confidence, or Israel's king has no confidence in Israel's God, but the pagan king puts his hope in Israel's God. What a sad state of affairs when the people of God trust their God less than those who have nothing to do with their God. So things in Israel have become, have become quite 
bad. But then we have uh, another puzzle to consider. It seems as though Elisha speaks out of both sides of his mouth. Because Hazael comes and he, he wants to know on behalf of Ben-Hadad if his master is going to recover. And, and it seems in the, in the same breath, Elisha says, yes, he will recover and no, he's going to die. Right? It, it, it would seem from the outside observer like Elisha's hedging his bets. He's going to recover and he's going to die. I mean, how, do you, how can you be wrong in that case? One way or the other, you're going to get the answer right. And so, and so the, the skeptic can say, look, look, this prophet is saying two things at the same time that are directly contradictory. The Bible contradicts itself. What a, what a bunch of garbage. This is just one verse. And even this one verse isn't consistent with itself. But, but that's not the case at all. Right? If you look at what the question is, the question is about the illness. Will I recover from this illness? And the answer to that question is yes. If he was left to himself, Ben-Hadad would have recovered. It was not an illness which led to death. It was a recoverable illness. But that's not the end of the story because Ben-Hadad isn't left to himself. Instead, Ben-Hadad is going to be murdered, and he's going to be murdered by Hazel. And so, yes, he would have recovered, but no, he won't recover because he's going to be killed, killed by this very man. And then we have this, this very uncomfortable scene. If you put yourself as a fly on the wall and you go and read verse 11 and you imagine that you're there, I suspect you'll feel some level of discomfort says, Elisha stared at him with a fixed gaze until Hazael felt ashamed. Then the man of God began to weep. E Elisha breaks all kind of man code here. Right? First, he stares at Hazael with this fixed gaze, just staring at him and staring at him. And he stares at him long enough that Hazael begins to feel ashamed. There's this, there's this sense of, of awkwardness. And then, to make it worse than the stare, Elisha begins to cry. And Hazael wants to know, well, well, why are you crying? Why are you crying, my Lord? And it's because Elisha is not so much staring simply at Hazael. He's staring into his soul. And he's staring into his future. He sees, as he stares at Hazael, by by the power of God, he sees Hazael's future. And he sees that Hazael is going to wreak destruction upon the people of Israel. We would call the things which Hazael is going to do crimes against humanity. These are the kinds of things that kings or presidents or, or whatever it is get hauled before the international court and put to death for. He's He's going to go to war, and he's going to entirely destroy cities. He's going to burn them down. He's going to rip rocks down. But not only that, he's going to take children, and he's going to dash them against the rocks. He's going to kill babies. Unfortunately, something which we do as well. We don't use rocks. We use forceps. He's going to kill babies, and then he's going to rip open pregnant women. He's going to do everything he possibly can to wreak as much destruction as he possibly can upon as many people as he possibly can, seeking to utterly devastate and destroy the people of Israel. And so Elisha looks at him and begins to weep, and the prophets speak of this. 
Amos, the prophet, says that this is not a, a behavior which is going to go unpunished by any means, that God will judge the people who do so. Amos 1, verse 13 says, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So there will be judgment upon Hazel and those like him, but Hazel and those like him are also judgment upon Israel. And we read that from the prophet Hosea. Hosea 13, Samaria, Samaria the capital of Israel, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword, their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Israel is going to be devastated because, because, it, because Israel would not receive her God. And because she rebelled against her God, even though he had given her so many blessings, she's going to be left open and vulnerable, is going to be invaded and destroyed, all by the vicious, bloodthirsty hand of Hazel. Then Elisha begins to weep. Why does he begin to weep? Why does he begin... Why does he begin to weep? Why is it so sad that this is going to happen? This is exactly what God had promised was going to happen. God had said this would happen. If Israel did what Israel has done, this was going to happen. Isn't this, isn't this the truth? And isn't this merited? Isn't this justified? And isn't this, isn't this God's judgment? Why does Elisha the prophet weep over something which God has decreed and which God has said was going to happen? Now, aren't these things true? Well, of course they're true. This is God's judgment. It, it was just. Israel had done things to merit it. So why is he crying? Because it's still sad. Even when judgment is deserved, it's still sad. Something to weep over. We can recall an instance from the life and ministry of Jesus in Luke 19. And I won't get into the details because I don't want to steal Pastor John's thunder tonight and in a couple of weeks. But in, in Luke 19, Jesus sees the, the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And we read this in Luke 19, and when Jesus drew near and saw the city Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus didn't weep because it, because it wasn't a merited destruction. Jesus wept because, as we read in Ezekiel, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Elisha weeps, even though this judgment is merited, he weeps because God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. There's a man, Horatio Bonner, he once wrote of God's judgment on Sodom, I think that the shower of fire and brimstone was wet with the tears of God as it fell. God takes no delight. God takes no delight in punishing wickedness but yet he will still do so. And so he will, and Israel will fall, but that's left off for the 
next passage we come to next week, Lord willing. And this continues to set the stage. And more stage is set as we come into the next number of verses, verses 16 to 24. And this is the, the first time we come here to Jehoram. And this is the first time we've been with the king of Judah since January. Back in January, we finished up with the book of First Kings, and we saw two kings in a row who were good. We saw Asa and Jehoshaphat, and they were both good kings. But now we see that there, there is a weakness in Judah because the next king, Jehoram, marries a daughter of Ahab. Now, it's, it's a very unfortunate for us anyways. It's a very unfortunate historical hiccup that so many of these kings have the same name. Right? We have, uh, we have an Ahaziah here in 2 Kings 8. You go back to 2 Kings 1, you have an Ahaziah. Two different kings of two different kingdoms. But to make it even worse, at this moment in time, there are two kings, Jehoram, who are reigning at the same time. There's Jehoram in the north, and there's Jehoram in the south. Now that's confusing. Why in God's providence he would have two kings with the same name reigning at the same time is beyond me. But here we go, we have two kings. We have Jehoram in the north and Jehoram in the south. And to kind of keep things straight, I'll refer to the southern king as Jehoram and the northern king as Joram, which is short for Jehoram. It's kind of like Ben is short for Benjamin. So we have Jehoram in the south and Joram in the north. And King Jehoram of Judah marries the daughter of Ahab and the sister of Joram in the north, a woman by the name of Athaliah. When you hear the name of Athaliah, it should send a shiver down your spine and there should be a, a little bit of a frog in your throat because she's such an incredibly wicked woman. And so he, he marries this wicked woman. And the reason that Jehoram marries this wicked woman is because there's this growing threat rising in the east. The Assyrian Empire, which was a very vicious empire even by ancient standards, is, is rising in the east and is beginning to make its way west towards Israel and Judah. And so at this moment in time, Israel and Judah decide to put away their petty, their petty bickering and they decide to join forces so that together, hopefully, they'll be able to, to fend off the Assyrians when they come. And how better to make sure that your friend doesn't betray you than to marry his sister? And so he marries the sister of the enemy of the other king, King Joram in the north. But what a fool. What a fool to think that, that a few thousand chariots and a few thousand horsemen and soldiers from a different country is going to be what saves him. Jehoram doesn't need chariots and horsemen. Jehoram needs the Lord. And he goes the exact opposite direction. Jehoram runs the opposite way. Instead of running to the Lord, he runs away from the Lord. Instead of running to the Lord, he runs to the idolatrous Athaliah. He demonstrates that he does not have faith. And this all happens to his own detriment. It will kill his own soul, and it will lead to the death of his son. To the, to the uneducated observer, the game of baseball looks very simple. Uh, you, you throw the ball, you hit the ball, you catch the ball, you tag the guy with the ball, the ball goes everywhere, the guys, the guys do their thing, and it just, it just looks like this, this simple game. But the one who understands the game, there's an incredible amount of strategy. It's like a, it's like a chess match with a ball on one side trying to get the advantage on the other. And, and one of the ways you get an advantage between a pitcher and a batter is to get ahead in the count. 
If you can get strike one on the batter, you can oftentimes dictate the rest of the count, manipulating the batter's fear of striking out. And so strike one very easily can lead to strike two, which can lead to strike three. And that's what we see here with Jehoram. He has strike one and that he marries Athaliah. Strikes two and three come directly out of this failure. Strike one is marrying Athaliah. Then when we come into the second strike, we see that there's another problem with Jehoram. And Jehoram is the king of Judah, and Judah at that time ruled over the land of Edom, a historic enemy of Judah. They had him under their thumb, but during the time, but during the time of Jehoram, Edom revolts and very nearly kills Jehoram. And so his kingdom begins to crumble. And then strike three is that during Jehoram's reign, Libna revolts. Now the reason that's significant is because Libna was not some foreign city. Libna was part of Judah. Even his own kingdom is beginning to revolt against him. You see, to, to use a very technical term, Jehoram is a dope. He made one bad move after another. He made one mistake after another. But the mistakes all stemmed from one mistake. And that mistake was that he married poorly. He married, as we might say, not in the Lord. Now, this is a drum I'm sure I've, I've beaten before, and it's one I'm sure that I'll beat again, because the Scriptures beat this drum again and again, even within the book of Kings. And it's very important for the people of God to marry well. It's very important for the people of God to marry in the Lord. Not to make, not to make Jehoram's mistake. It, I know that there's a, shortage, there's a shortage of godly persons. And it can seem as though any spouse is better than no spouse. But I assure you that that is not the case. I have known plenty of people, men and women, throughout the course of time that I am convinced, of course I would not ask them, that I am convinced that if you hook them up to a lie detector or a polygraph and you ask them, would your life be better without your spouse in it, they would have said yes. Because living with someone who does not love the Lord can be a miserable thing. And here we have Jehoram, who has married foolishly. He would have been better off marrying a homely, humble, godly Israelite peasant girl than marrying the royal princess, Athaliah. The Westminster Confession of Faith talks about marriage in the 24th chapter of the Confession. I'll read just a portion of what it says. The Confession says, It is lawful for all sorts of people to marry who are able with judgment to give their consent Yet it is the duty of Christians to marry only in the Lord. And therefore, such as profess the true Reformed religion should not marry with infidels, papists, or other idolaters, neither should such as are godly be unequally yoked by marrying with those with such as are notoriously wicked in their life. Jehoram blew all those things. He married an idolater. He married one who was wicked. And it, it is easy for us it is easy for us to fall in love with swagger or with a figure. 
We, but when we, when we say I do, we are saying I do to a person, body and soul. We are saying I do, and when we say I do, we are promising to grow old and wrinkly together. We are promising to stay together when the swagger has turned to sickness and the figure has grown saggy. You will still be married. And when you are still married, inevitably the person you marry will grow old and weak, but also, just as inevitably, the person you marry will have an effect on your soul. And the holy spouse will have a sanctifying effect on your soul, will have a good effect on your soul. The unholy spouse will wreak destruction on your soul. Jehoram may have married a royal princess, but he also married into death death of his soul and the death in time of his son. Jehoram was a fool, and he was unfaithful. But we see here very plainly the faithfulness of God. If you look with me at verse 19, we see God's faithfulness. Nevertheless, for the sake of his servant David, the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah. He had promised to maintain a lamp for David and his descendants forever. Now, Jehoram was a fool. The Lord, had, the Lord had no regard for Jehoram. Jehoram deserved everything that was coming to him. He deserved to be destroyed. And for that matter, his nation deserved to be destroyed. But even in the face of all of Jehoram's failure, God was still faithful. God still kept his promise. And that royal promise is referred to as a lamp. Back in 2 Samuel 7, the Lord had made a promise to David that he would always have a king. And that king was referred to as a lamp. You will always have a lamp to stand before me. And so this, this re reference to the lamp is a reference to God's promise that David would always have a king. That there would always be a king who was coming. And this, this promise shows up in different places in the Scripture. Uh, providentially, we were in 2 Samuel chapter 21 this last week in our, in our family worship. And it's an exciting time in, in that back end of 2 Samuel. There, there, there we find David and his friends and his army going off and trying to fight with giants. They're trying to kill off Goliath's brothers or Goliath's children or whatever it may be. And so they're, they're off trying to fight these giants. And we see David in this hand-to-hand -hand combat with the giant named Ishbi-Banab. How's that for a name, right? He's, he's fighting Ishbi-Banab. And in boxing terms, we would say that the giant has David on the ropes, and he's about to kill him. And just as he's about to kill David, Abishai comes in and saves the day and kills the giant. And when it's all over, and when it's all over, David's men come to him and they say this in verse 17, you, David, shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. What were they saying? They're saying, David, it's not worth it having you, old man. It's not worth it having you come out to battle with us. You're too important. You're the one that God gave a promise to. And you're better dead, you're better alive than dead. And so they were referring to this promise, the promise of a lamp. And here we see that as well, that this promise is in view. Jehoram had great, great, great sin. But what do we see again and again and again in the Scriptures? We see that as great as our sin may be, God's grace is always greater. 
And that's the case here. Jehoram's unfaithfulness was not enough to undo God's faithfulness. His sin, as great as it was, was not greater than God's promise. Then as we move into the last few verses, verses 25 to 29, we come, we come and we see Ahaziah, the, the next king of Judah. And Ahaziah walks in his father's footsteps. He sticks real close to mom. He follows all of mom's rules. He follows all of mom's advice. He goes off to war with, with his uncle up in the north. And then the story ends. But it doesn't really end. Right? We, we get left on a bit of a cliffhanger. We, we have these two kings in the same place at the same time. They're, they're both wicked. They've been promised that there's going to be an enemy who's going to do them harm. And we find them in the same place in the same time, but there's no closure given. That's because this whole passage is just setting the stage for the next passage, which we'll wait off for next week. But what do we get out of this passage? What do we receive from this passage? And I think the first thing, two things. I think the first thing is that it matters who we are in relationship with. And it doesn't mean just who we marry. Right? The problem with Jehoram wasn't just that he married Athaliah. It was that he was friends with the wicked kings in the north. And so it matters not just who we marry. It matters who we are friends with. And we see this in the New Testament as well. Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Jehoram jumped in bed, literally Jehoram jumped in bed with wickedness. And we can just as foolishly surround ourselves with all kinds of wicked persons who will not have a good effect on us, but who will in fact drive us down. And your friends may very well be bad company. They drink too much. They're foul-mouthed. They act lewdly. They're corrupting. And they should be cut off. I can, I can just hear, I can just hear the objection. But, 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 but what about evangelizing? Yes, by all means evangelize your ungodly friends. But don't do it half drunk with them with their filthy language dripping off your tongue. Do it sober and in the spirit. Reminding them that just as judgment came for Joram, Jehoram, Ahaziah, and Athaliah, so too judgment comes for all who act foolishly and rebel against the Lord. You don't have to enter into someone's wickedness in order to tell them about the righteous God. It matters who we are in association with. The proverb says, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Who do you walk with? Grumblers? There are plenty of grumblers to go around. The church has more than its fair share of grumblers. Gossips? Those who are foul-mouthed? Greedy men, the immoral, like the Pilgrim's Progress says, Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Do you walk with those who have adopted the world's tastes? Do you watch the same movies, the same television as the world watches, even though the Word of the Lord says to have nothing to do with impurity whatsoever? Who do you walk with? 
If you're a companion of fools, as Jehoram was, it's time for a fresh start. It's time to leave behind the ungodly and walk with the wise. That doesn't mean that we cut off and separate ourselves from every ungodly person that we have ever met and move into some kind of Protestant monastery or convent. But it means that our our first, our closest, our most formative and influential relationships are with those who also love Christ. Jehoram walked with fools and he suffered harm. The second thing we get out of the passage is that this passage fits very nicely with the grand twofold message of the Bible. Sin leads to death and grace leads to life. And we see that. Joram, Jehoram, Ahaziah, Athaliah, they all die. And they're all judged. And they all take their turn, one at a time, at the judgment seat of Christ, and it will not go well for them. Sin leads to death. But grace leads to life. And we find grace most powerfully and most beautifully in Christ. Christ is the lamp. Christ is the king who sits and shines before God forever. The author of the Psalms, Psalm 132, speaks of this lamp, starting in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. Do you you see what he's saying? He's saying that there is going to be a time when the people of God are restored, when things are all as it's supposed to be. And what do we see next? We see there, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Uh, Who is the lamp? Who is the lamp that's promised to David? Who is the lamp that is preserved, that Joram is preserved because of? Who is the lamp of Psalm 132? Christ Jesus is the lamp. He's the promised king. And that's where he says, right, in the Gospel of John, he says, I am the light of the world. He is indeed the light. And if you are going to walk in the light, you must leave behind the idolatry of Jehoram and the love of all the worldly things that would hold you back from coming to Christ. At the end of the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, John speaks of Jesus as the Lamb of God and the Lamp. He says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. The message of the book of Kings is that God always keeps his promises, and not one of his promises ever fails. Even Jehoram, who married Athaliah, couldn't stop God's promise. And so as you come to the very end of the Scriptures, to the very end of the age, what do we see? We see David's greatest son. 
sitting on the throne of heaven, shining brighter than the sun, giving so much light that there is no need for a sun, and giving so much light that there is never any night. The promise of God never fails, and the promise of God again and again and again in the scriptures is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But to be saved, you must come out of the darkness of sin. And you must come into the light of Christ through repentance and faith. You have to leave behind everything Jehoram loved. You have to leave behind everything that you love and which you would love instead of Christ. And you must come to Christ and bring nothing to him except for faith and a deep and abiding love for our Heavenly Father. If you are going to avoid Jehoram's fate, you must leave behind his folly, and you must turn to the God he refused, to the God who gives promise, and to the God who gives life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, on this Pentecost Sunday, we so deeply desire to be filled with your Spirit that we may have wisdom, that we may have wisdom to walk with the wise, to avoid bad company, we would have wisdom to marry well and to encourage others to do so as well. But most of all, above all these things, we ask for wisdom to love Christ, to see him as the great light of the world, and to leave behind the darkness which it is so easy to cling to, and to turn instead to the life that he offers through repentance and faith. We ask for this wisdom, and we ask for his life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I dropped my bulletin in my excitement, but we're going to stand now together. We're going to sing the solid rock, number 315. We'll sing the first, third, and